Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. Uh, Regardless of the circumstances that we face today, we face them in the fellowship of Christ. We face them together as fellow members of the body of Christ. And so if there's something you're facing today for which you would like some prayers, you can always text me. The text line is open, 877-933-2484. If it's something But, you know, longer than fits in a text message. You can always email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you for uh, those of you who have communicated with me your concerns. And thank you for those of you who pray for me each and every day. Um, I count on that. I appreciate that. And and I want to just continue to invite, invite you to do that. All right. A couple of quick headlines before we turn to our international conversation with Drew Griffin, who is with us here this morning from Providence Magazine. Uh, Let me... Let me note a couple of things uh, headline news-wise. Today marks the start of a one-year window in the state of New York that allows molestation victims to file lawsuits, which would have previously been barred by a statute of limitations. And so I think that we should um, have an expectation that over the coming days and weeks and even months, because this is going to be a full year, um, we will see suits brought against the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts of America, public school districts, hospitals, uh, churches. These are among the expected targets in um, uh, in this window. And this is this has taken place in other states, and we have seen um, the prior victims who didn't have the opportunity to bring their cases forward uh, in what would have been considered, you know, a timely manner in terms of statutes of limitation. They are... Uh, they're going to see themselves uh, have an opportunity now to um, to come forward. Now, uh, that means that these institutions are bracing for what some are describing as a devastating financial blow. When a similar law uh, went into effect in California in 2002, it resulted in one Catholic diocese having to pay out $1.2 billion in legal settlement, settlements. So I just think that, you know, we need to be uh, awake and alert to this and recognize that um, these victims are real. And um, and what institutions are going to be required to pay out in civil penalties is also going to be it's going to be real money. Um, this is interesting this morning. More than one in 10 Americans, 34 million of us are living in what are called rapidly heating regions of the country. That includes New York, New York City and Los Angeles. Uh, there were more than thirty one hundred counties in involved in this study. And, you know, it's getting hot. It's getting hotter. I don't I don't know about you. I, I live in the middle of America. It was uh, the real feel temperature yesterday where I live was 112. <laughs> uh, it was at, at, at 445 in the afternoon. The real feel temperature where I live was 108. I got to tell you, it's not supposed to be that hot where I live. Now, I recognize that August is basically telling July that, you know, July is is just a cool month. 
Um, and, and August is the hot month. Well, uh, it felt that way yesterday. Alaska happens to be the fastest warming state. Now, this is nothing to do. Please do not start emailing me that um, I'm I'm hysterical about climate change. This is not I, I'm not even saying who's responsible. I, this is not a conversation about what's what is causing it. This is simply an observation that it's getting hotter. OK, so winter temperatures are actually higher across the lower 48 uh, some of you are thanking God for that. Um, Rhode Island is actually the first state where average temperatures have risen by more than two degrees Celsius. In other parts of the Northeast, New Jersey, Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts, uh, they are trailing close behind Rhode Island in terms of the heat up rate. However, Alaska is actually the fastest warming state, uh, which is you know problematic because of all that tundra. Okay, and the other interesting um, headline today is about mortgage debt. Mortgage debt has now reached a record in the second quarter, exceeding the 2008 peak. Uh, and you might remember that when uh, mortgages, when mortgage debt peaked, we entered into uh, a financial crisis. So, no, I don't think anybody's predicting a financial crisis related to this. I do think it's interesting, however, that we have um, maybe we have recovered our confidence in our own ability to pay back mortgages. And maybe we, um, you know, we have reached the place where home ownership is is significantly important to people, although we have a rising percentage of young people who do not see the value of owning their own home. And the rental market is really booming in America. So just interesting trends to watch and things to consider in terms of your conversations today. Uh, Ultimately, you know. I'm going to find my home in the Lord, and I thank him that uh, that's a debt-free. That is debt-free. I just I love that, right? All right, next up is Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. He and I are going to turn our attention to uh, what's unfolding in Hong Kong. We've been talking about this here on the program, but um, but we're just going to continue. we got heightened concern today uh, in terms of China's action toward the people of Hong Kong. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. Hey, welcome back, Drew. Oh, good morning, Carmen. How are you? Well, I'm well. It's great to be with you. Um, just letting, letting you know, you and I are not going to take a break. We are uh, we are going to start now, and we're going to continue to the bottom of the hour. So uh, thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, we're going to lead off our conversation today uh, with what is going on in Hong Kong. Um, I'm, we're now seeing images of Chinese troops massing near Hong Kong. Uh, I think that that is stoking the fears of an impending crackdown on pro-democracy protesters there. What are you uh, what are you seeing? What's your sense of things? Yeah, so this this is a a situation that we've been covering uh, in depth uh, at uh, ProvidenceMag.com this week. uh, The issue of the protests, uh, pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. Um, just to kind of educate or set a little bit of context, I think it's important. Uh, you know, Hong Kong is this uh, semi-autonomous region uh, in uh, in China. That's a, a peninsula and a series of islands on the uh, southeast coast of uh, the Chinese mainland. That since uh, 1997 
when the the British uh, turned over their lease, uh, they had had a lease uh, on uh, on Hong Kong for 99 years. They turned it over to China. Hong Kong maintained and and had an agreement with China, the mainland China, Chinese um, communist government, to have a 50 year kind of agreement for a semi uh, semi autonomy, right? So that they are sort of under the the overall control of the mainland communist uh, Chinese um, uh, regime, but they uh, they have freedom of speech, they have freedom of assembly, they have freedom of religion, and they have a lot of the rights that they enjoyed under British rule for 99 years. Uh, there are seven million citizens there, right? So, and and we are estimated around 700 to 800,000 Christians. Um, and in March, the uh, Chinese um, uh, supported Hong Kong Legislative Council, uh, led by their chief executive Carrie Lam, uh, introduced this bill that proposed uh, extradition of anyone uh, to um, uh, within Hong Kong to countries that they don't have extradition treaties to, including China, including um, Taiwan. And this is this was the real kind of uh, instigator of, of these protests, because the idea is is if um, someone in in Hong Kong got on the wrong side of the uh, communist regime in China, they could then be uh, extradited to China. Um, and this gave uh, human rights advocates, this gave religious freedom advocates within Hong Kong a lot of pause uh, and was you know, quite, quite frightening. So they began to protest. These protests have grown. Even though the uh, extradition treaty has been tabled, the protests continue to kind of foment and continue to rage because I think Hong Kongers uh, rightly see this as a, um, a real threat to the freedoms that they have enjoyed, a threat, a threat to their autonomy. Um, so this is something that uh, seems to be escalating. It does not seem to be dying down. Um, the Chinese government led by um, Xi Jinping is, I think, um, uh, attempting to maintain, maintain control uh, to set an example in Hong Kong. You know, uh, there are hundreds of, of cities in China with populations over a million that are, are looking at Hong Kong and seeing how urban environments that resist the central government um, are treated. And so I think he wants to set an example here. So yeah, the Guardian newspaper is reporting that they're beginning to amass troops at the Chinese border, um, maybe ostensibly for the purpose of actually occupying Hong Kong and, and putting down this revolt in a way that would maybe resemble the the Tiananmen Square uh, protests in uh, 1989, um, uh, which were deadly. I mean, the tanks were rolling in the streets. There's that famous image of uh, the lone man standing in front of a long line of, of Chinese tanks. And so um, I think the responsibility that we have uh, here in the West and here in the United States is to support the, the citizens of Hong Kong. Uh, that they have a legal agreement with the, the communist regime for 50 years of, of semi-autonomy. Um, they have freedoms they need to enjoy. And I think on a larger uh, picture, anytime uh, we in the West see little sparks of, of freedom out in the world, we need to fan those. We need to fan those flames. It's part of our, I think, responsibility um, to challenge what is uh, a, a truly you know, totalitarian and uh, uh, a horrible regime in the, in the Chinese regime. So, Drew, you know, I think that when we when we're having worldview conversations, one of the things that we have talked about um, in relationship to what's happening between China and Hong Kong and now I would say, you know, the pro-democracy West 
is that we are, you know, there's a worldview different. There's a serious difference in worldview in terms of what Xi Jinping thinks uh, ought to be happening and how things ought to be working out. This is uh, this is a territory under his domain, under his control. Uh, it is a territory, you know, Hong Kong, uh, that is part of China and legally so. And so when we from the West look that direction and say these are pro-democracy demonstrators and we are, um, you know, in, at least in terms of worldview, you know, we are on their side and we side with the the, the, the expression of freedom of these individuals and their uh, their understanding of justice, which is very Western compared to uh, China's understanding of justice, which is not Western and not democratic. Um, and so this is a real clash of of worldviews like we have not openly seen in generations. And so um, uh, you and I, you know, you, you and I would use the word escalating. I think others would use the word uh, devolving um, either way. It is uh, it is a it is a situation unlikely to end peaceably. No, that's right. I think we're we're we've got two uh, mutually exclusive uh, worldviews that are going to at some point fight it out. And unfortunately, I think for those in Hong Kong, uh, barring them, you know, um, taking to the streets and and fighting, you know, troops and and kind of defending their autonomy. I mean, the the Chinese government is likely going to win out. Um, the I see this at this point uh, kind of as a missed opportunity um, uh, for the West and for the United States. Uh, the Trump administration, President Trump himself, has kind of literally said, "Hey, this is a Chinese matter. Hong Kong's part of China. They've got to figure it out." Well, that's you know all fine and well, um, except for the fact that I think that there's there's real leverage uh, that the West has uh, with China, that the U.S. has with China, economic leverage. Um, and Hong Kong is a major economic gateway to China. It's why China and the, the Beijing is so concerned uh, with what's happening in Hong Kong is that they want to maintain some amount of control. They want to see that they don't want to see that economic gateway disturbed. For instance, protesters, um, you know, uh, took over the airport, shut down airport operations for two days. Was, uh, Hong Kong is a major international hub. Uh, that has a huge economic impact on on China in general, and so um, I think that there's economic leverage of saying, "Hey, look, you know, um, allow Hong Kong to be Hong Kong, allow them to uh, exist under the law that they uh, have a right to exist under, allow that economic uh, uh, vitality to continue to, th- uh, you know, um, flow into China." And I think it should be, you know, hopefully a little bit of a test case of saying, look, look at what freedom does. I mean, what, why, is, uh, why does Hong Kong have an inordinate uh, you know, economic role in, in China is because I think they've, they've existed with the freedom that the rest of the country has not enjoyed, uh, a freedom of conscience, a freedom, uh, an economic freedom. And so it's like maybe there's a lesson there. And I think we need to uh, uh, draw a, a line around that lesson and we need to uh, emphasize it. And I think rhetorically, if, if no other way, um, try and connect those dots uh, for the watching world and for the the government in Beijing. So I, I hope that the you know maybe Trump administration takes a little bit of a harder line or uses some of these um, sanctions and some of these tariffs and the and the trade war uh, perhaps to uh, enact some leverage to allow Hong Kong to remain um, semi autonomous. So let's pivot from the most populous country in the world, China, to the second most populous country in the world, India. 
uh, in a contest between India and Pakistan, which is like the fifth most populous country in the world, um, over a region called Kashmir. Now, we we briefed in on this yesterday uh, or Monday a little bit, but tell us what's going on on the I guess we would describe Kashmir as on the border, right? It's this contested land. Um, India claims sovereignty over it. Pakistan, because uh, it's it's also Muslim and Islamic, and the people of Kashmir share their faith. Um, there's this again. There's this worldview contest, and in, in this case, it's between Hindu nationalists in India and Islamic uh, Sharia enthusiasts in Pakistan. But we're still talking about a worldview contest here. Yeah, so this is not uh, totally dissimilar to what we were just talking about in China, is that uh, with Kashmir, you have this kind of uh, semi-autonomous region. Uh, They have their own flag. They have their own uh, kind of uh, government and their own laws. Uh, But this is an area of land that was not settled out during the Great Partition when, um, you know, Great Britain turned over control of uh, India uh, to um, uh, India. Uh, They... um, there was the Great Partition that that separated Pakistan from India. The uh, Muslims went to Pakistan. Uh, Hindus remained in India, and so you had the creation of Pakistan, and you had this this separation. So there's this little bit of land up in the, in the northern part of India and kind of the northeast part of Pakistan that is this kind of disputed land in which neither side, you know, has um, claimed total control. It is majority Muslim. Uh, but is semi-autonomous. Well, in the elections this year, the 2019 elections, um, uh, Article 370 in the uh, Indian Constitution, which uh, spelled out the autonomy of Kashmir, was revoked um, as a uh, pro-Hindu and Hindu nationalist government uh, took power. Uh, they revoked this uh, Article 370, said, hey, Kashmir is is no longer autonomous, and they've actually sent you know troops into Kashmir basically to occupy it. Um, their reasoning for this, the uh, government of Nahendra Modi, the um, uh, Hindu nationalist um, prime minister now who was elected, uh, their reason for um, going into Kashmir is saying, well, look, it, it's a source of terrorism. It's a source of, of terrorist camps of, of Muslims and uh, anti-Hindu uh, terrorists that launch you know, out of Kashmir into India. And so we need to squash it. Um, and so that's kind of their, their ostensible reason. But what this really, I think, is is uh, a an increase that we're seeing in India, and it's a troubling increase in the rise of um, a, a nationalism that's tied to uh, the Hindu religion, uh, Hindu nationalism. Nandra Modi, the, the prime minister, is a main uh, proponent of this, and it really seeks to uh, eliminate um, any part of the Indian society that doesn't uh, conform to Hindu. Um, and so Christians have faced increasing persecution. Uh, Muslims have faced increasing persecution. Anyone who is not a Hindu is facing increasing persecution. And um, Modi is using uh, Hinduism as a, a cohesive element to unite a kind of uh, divided um, uh, India. And so for Christians living in India, for Christians living in Kashmir, uh, they are really worried because a lot of the Christians that are living in Kashmir are Muslim converts, uh, since the Kashmir is majority Muslim. Uh, and so they face pressure within their own communities because of their conversion. Um, and now they're facing uh, pressure because of the Hindu involvement from India. And so you, they're, they're caught between this vice of uh, Muslims that are protesting um, 
their conversion to Christianity and now Hindus that are going to persecute them because they're they're not Hindu. And so we really need to pray, I think, for the Christian community in Pakistan and uh, and in um, uh, Kashmir uh, particularly. And uh, just you know, again, I think it's an opportunity for uh, the United States uh, to um, to speak and to articulate a message that says, hey, you know, um, what right does India have to do this? Um, and uh, to kind of push back against this authoritarian strain that we're seeing in China, in Russia, um, in India, uh, in Turkey, uh, all of these different areas in which the the leaders are saying, well, we're just going to do kind of whatever we want in these areas that have been autonomous or these areas that have been uh, areas that have kind of fostered freedom we are going to uh, squash them. You know, the United States, I think, needs to uh, speak on the side of freedom, speak on the side of sovereignty and autonomy, and um, uh, it's it's a very troubling situation. It occurs to me, Drew, and you and I are going to have to close up our conversation, but it occurs to me that, you know, there was this period of time during which um, mostly the British, like, negotiated all of these uh, ways forward that had very long lead times uh, in, in terms of the way uh, people would live in p- the post-colonial world. Mm-hmm. And we're, we've sort of arrived at a time where that all is now uh, up for renewed debate. And, um, and, it, and it looks as if, you know, sentiments are shifting in many of those regions and many of those places. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, if there if a new mediator arises, because it does certainly look as as if the United States is uh, not the welcome mediator in many of these situations. I guess I'm thinking here also, you know, of uh, uh, something that you and I frequently talk about, um, which is, you know, which is Israel. So um, we'll return to these conversations with Drew, Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Again, it's ProvidenceMag.com. Read Drew's piece on human worth that's posted there right now. It's excellent. Uh, we'll be right back. Thank you. Jesus acknowledges that the poor will always be with us. Um, I'm wondering how many of us use that as an excuse to not do anything about the reality of people living in poverty in our own communities. Um, I'm wondering how, what what assumptions we make about people who are poor and impoverished. I'm, I'm wondering if we even like have a good working definition of that term um, and whether or not our hearts have basically grown cold and hard toward people who um, whose backs are up against the wall in the culture. Uh, and so I'm going to have that conversation uh, with author Terrence Lester. His book is I See You, How Love Opens Our Eyes to Invisible People. It reminded me of another book I'd read called Invisible Neighbor. And I guess I want you to think about who you don't see every day as you're driving to work, every day as you are taking kids to school every day as you are going about whatever it is that's the merry-go-round of your own life or the hamster wheel or however you're thinking about it today. Um, Who are the people you don't see? And do you not see them because you intentionally now choose to not see them? So who do I choose to not see every single day um, who's in my path? And why? Why why has my heart grown cold toward uh, people in desperate need in my own communities along my own path? That's the conversation I'm going to have next with Terrence Lester. I see you. So what do you need today? Like, what do you need today? And how are you going to get that need met? Um, 
if you are a person who enjoys access to um, the means of production in, in terms of your own life, like, right, the ability to produce in order that you can then enjoy the benefits of, of labor. Um, and if you're a person who has access to relationships and access to, um, wow, there's just so many, just think about all of the things that you have access to. Uh, and how you gain access to those. And then who doesn't have access? Well, one of the things that you have access to uh, is MyFaithRadio.com. And we want to invite you to uh, be the person who shares this ministry with other people. So we're coming up on what we call Fall Share. It's going to be the second week of September. And we really want you to be sharing this ministry with other people in anticipation of Fall Share, which is when we take the opportunity to invite you to engage in this ministry and support it financially. So between now and Fall Share, which starts on September the 9th, uh, my challenge to you as a listener uh, of this program is to share the ministry with somebody else. So if you listen via the Faith Radio app, share the app with somebody else. If you listen online at MyFaithRadio.com, I want you to share the website with someone else. If you listen Uh, via live radio uh, in one of our listening markets. Maybe you listen in the Twin Cities or in Duluth or in Hartford, Madison, Waterloo, Sioux Falls, Kansas City, Fargo, Moorhead, Bismarck, uh, wherever you are listening right now, I want you to share the station that you are listening to with someone else. That's your share challenge between now and the beginning of Fall Share. And then I want you to share with me who you shared it with. All right, so you can share that with me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. That's email, or you can always text me, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. I'm sure you've heard the term good steward. It shows up a lot in the Bible. God tells us we should be good stewards of all he's given to us. But do you ever stop and wonder what that really means? Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Here's the way I see it. If you're a good steward, you use your gifts from God wisely in a way that supports your purpose in life and reflects your faith. It means considering the needs of others and not just your wants, so you can be content and live generously. So, what are these gifts from God? Your unique talents, the financial and material resources you've been entrusted with. Being a good steward is no small task. It requires trust and obedience to God. It means considering more than just yourself when it comes to making financial decisions, and it requires a long-term as well as a short-term perspective. That's not easy at all, but it is rewarding and fulfilling. All right, some of our best laid plans uh, don't always work out, so we do not have Terrence Lester on the line, but we will rebook with him uh, because I want to talk about the book, I See You, uh, How Love Opens Our Eyes to Invisible People, but we'll have to return to that on another day. So let me circle back um, to the, the conversation that we had on Monday with David Aikman, and we just had today with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine, um, and it is this worldview conversation about you know, about China. And I don't really know, like, how much you've thought about China over the course of your life. I um, I, I actually remember my dad 
talking about, and this, you know, this, this dates me because my dad died when I was 15 and I'm now 51. So uh, the, the fact that I remember him talking about this is, you know, we're talking about something that <laughs> conversations that took place a long time ago. Um, my dad was actually more concerned about China in terms of uh, the worldview significance and our ability as Christians and and people uh, who are Western in our thinking. Now, those two things are not necessarily linked, right? There are people who are Christian who uh, who do not live in the West and do not have a Western perspective on things. So I acknowledge that. But I am both. I am both a Christian and a person with a Western worldview, like, right? So I operate out of out of both of those um, understandings. And so I'm, I think in terms of democratic thought, I think in terms of systems of justice that are, um, that are based on um, a Western understanding. Now, as soon as I say that, you're, you are going to acknowledge and uh, with me that the Western worldview is actually established on Christian principles. And so I can't get away from that truth and that reality and the intertwining of those two things. But I, I, I cannot assume that people who are neither Western nor Christian understand my worldview nor share it. And so when we talk about China, and again, this gets back to a conversation that, well, more probably more than one conversation that I have with my dad like a really long time ago. He was more concerned about China than he was about any anything else in the world, uh, any other uh, foreign power. And And his reasoning went something like this. They genuinely do not see the world the same way we see the world. And they do not see the resources of the world, including human capital, the same way we see it. And so when we regard people as precious and individuals as important, and and even when we say that, hey, you were uniquely created in the image of God, not just you were created in the image of God as, you know, some sort of like stamped out gingerbread man, right, with a cookie cutter. No, no. God actually conceived of you in his heart of hearts um, as a unique individual. Uh, and, and then you came into life through, through conception. And so God conceived of you actually before you were conceived. Um, and so what, is, what, is it, what does that mean? I mean, I have like this eternal significance and I have the opportunity for a restored relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. And that is... That shapes then everything that I think and how I understand myself and how I engage in the world that God so loves. So when you look in the mirror, do you just see, you know, like a gingerbread uh, cookie cutter stamped out human being, human being, human being, human being, human being? No, no, you see you and I see you and you are unique and fabulous and never again in all of human history will there ever be a person just like you. You're um, the way you are knit together, fearfully and wonderfully made, the way that everything um, has influenced your life. So like every one of us operates out of what's called social location. I am who I am because I was who I was when my grandmother was who she was, right? Like I am, uh, I am who I am um, because of a set of shared experiences in this like actual life, but also because of the runway that was set before me, because of the people uh, into whose family and life I had the opportunity to be born and raised. Like all of that and the country in which I was born and the time period in which I was born. I mean, we wouldn't be having these conversations right now um, had I been born, I don't know, 
200 years ago. I don't know, Paul, was radio around 200 years ago? Uh, I'm so no. bad at this. Okay, no. so no, you wouldn't be, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You certainly wouldn't be following me on Twitter, and we wouldn't be engaging um, on Facebook or other social media platforms. It just wouldn't happen. And so um, we have unique opportunities right now to share our worldview and speak our worldview literally into the entire world. And the reason that I bring that up is because the Chinese feel the same way they just feel it in 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 a completely reverse scenario. So when we come back, I'm going to share with you a little bit more of what David Aikman started talking about on Monday. And it's this Chinese understanding of the world. It's their cultural concept. Um, Qin Shi is how you pronounce it, or Qin Shia. And it's this Chinese term for this ancient Chinese cultural concept that um, encompasses the whole world and the metaphysical reality of of mortal beings. So I think we have to understand their worldview in uh, in order to really understand what's going on in Hong Kong and to to decide whether or not we perceive them as an active threat existentially now to the United States of America. So there you go. That's conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, so uh, I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we're talking about this Chinese term, which actually I'm going to spell it for you, T-I-A-N-X-I-A. And because my sister's name is Tiana, um, it's Tiana with a chi in the middle. So it's, uh, it, but it's not pronounced that way. So um, uh, it's not, and then, you, then the, you don't even, you don't even hear the T. So uh I'm going to, oh, David Aikman told me how to pronounce it, but I don't, I don't have that in front of me. And I can't read the Chinese pronunciation that's, that's on my sheet of paper. So um, Chen Shi is the way that I am pronouncing it, which may be completely wrong. But it's this um, understanding of total political sovereignty uh, over the entire geographical world and the metaphysical realm of all that is mortal. So now think about that for a minute. It is this comprehensive ancient Chinese cultural concept that dominates the Chinese worldview. And when we talk about something dominating the worldview of the most populous country in the world, uh, 1.4 some billion people, and and we think about um, having worldview conversations and we think about the fact that their worldview is that China, literally the imperial part of imperial China, China um, is the center of the world. And... um, you know, if you had 1.4 billion people and you were China today and you looked at the rest of the world and you said, you know, there's a vacuum of leadership anyway. Clearly, this is our time to rise and shine. Um, and 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 you have understood yourself for millennia. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the first Chinese dynasty rising in 8500 B.C. We're talking about people who've been thinking this way for a really long time. Now, this understanding of China as the center of of everything and its uh, its understanding of itself in terms of world domination and total global polit- political sovereignty doesn't actually arise until like the third dynasty, but that's still uh, before the rise of Christianity. And so, um, in ancient China, this uh, this Chen Shia denotes the lands, the space, the area that they understand to be divinely appointed to the emperor divinely appointed to the emperor by what they understand as universal principles of order. And so the center, the center of everything is the imperial court. And then you have these like concentric circles that go out uh, from there. 
And so if you think about where China is and the, you know, and they understand the imperial court of China to be the center of the universe and you draw concentric circles out from there, who is literally on the extreme edge of those circles? Well, they would describe them as barbarians. But if you think about the globe, who is it? Um, that would be us. That, that would be you and me. And so we're we are literally out there. Um, as far from what they understand to be the center of the political universe as we could be. And and so I think there are times that we have thought about, like, uh, how the gospel moved from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea, you know, to the ends of the earth. And so sometimes we think of the way the gospel moves in concentric circles. But if you remember, that concentric circle only moved westward. Why is that? Well, because it ran into a wall. It ran into a worldview wall. Now, it then also ran into a second worldview wall when, um, when the Muslims emerged and, uh, and, and built a barrier to the expanse of Christianity as well. But there was already this worldview wall in China because the Chinese understood themselves to have uh, a, a not only global but a universal um, understanding, this political agenda. So just so that you know, in classical Chinese political thought, the emperor is actually the son of heaven and has received a mandate from heaven, this heavenly decree, which makes them nominally the ruler of the whole world. And so you say to yourself, well, China's not imperialistic anymore. Well, it's communistic and it understands itself as totalitarian. And so even though it has a quote unquote president, it's not the same kind of president we have. It's not the same kind of political system we have. It's it's an, a worldview that is absolutely oppositional to both the Christian and the Western democratic system of thought. So you can't just show up and say, OK, why are you behaving this way toward the people of Hong Kong? Like what it, what is going on here? Um, there is a close association between this larger concept of uh, of Shen Qi. Uh, there's, it's closely associated with their understanding of order itself. And it's the basis of the Chinese worldview. And it's the basis of the worldview of all the nations that have been influenced by China since at least the first millennia B.C. Maybe longer ago than that, but at, historically, you can at least see this in Chinese history as far back as the first millennia, so let's say 1,000 B.C. And it has been applied then throughout what we might understand as all of East Asia. And so we are talking here about a very different way of thinking about the world and everything in it. Uh, And so I just thought that it might be worth tilling a little of that soil um, as we consider not only as Christians how we share the gospel, but also as people who have these Western understandings of individuals and democracy and justice and fairness and um, and ingenuity, like we um, think of the world very, very different than um, than the people who come out of this Chinese uh, way of thinking and Chinese process of thought. All right, let's take one more break and then we'll be right back. So we have a listener asking, um, so in that worldview, does that include killing their own people when required to keep order? Yes, absolutely. That's absolutely 
um, a part of this uh, this worldview that we're talking about. Um, the individual is not what matters. Individual ideas, individual opinions, individual thoughts, individual characteristics. If you have ever, um, you know, seen a picture of what it looks like to be integrated into uh, into Chinese thought and culture, it's called uh, it's called Sinicism. And if you've ever um, if you've ever looked at pictures, you will notice that everyone is dressed the same, and everyone is sitting very orderly, and everybody is walking literally in lockstep, um, and everybody's haircuts are exactly the same. That that's what we're talking about. There is an understanding of the collective of the whole as mattering far more than the individual, far more. So the whole, the collective, the people are far more important in every way than the individual in Chinese thought. The individual literally does not matter, especially if the individual is out of alignment in some way with the system, with the thought process. So let's be um, absolutely ardently praying for uh, the people living under this kind of regime, but also people, you know, raised in this kind of thought. And then let's think about how we as Christians penetrate that. Well, we penetrate it by those whom God has already called to himself in Jesus Christ in China. So let's be praying today for our brothers and sisters in China. They are the people who are in a position to communicate uh, the truth of the gospel uh, in, in that context. You and I, we don't even understand the worldview, and we're openly admitting that right now. But we do have brothers and sisters who are already there. And so let's be praying for them. Let's be coming alongside them in any way we can to equip them. And we've got some 700,000 brothers and sisters in Christ in Hong Kong. Uh, Let's be praying for them today as they understand who they are in Christ and they uh, feel led and called to to stand up uh, to this Chinese oppression. All right, friends, uh, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, the second hour of Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.